Thank you, Mary Beth. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grace Life. And guest, good to have you here with us today. Let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 12. We're going to be back in Romans today. I was thinking when she was reading the welcome, you know, one of the hardest things to say, to actually confess out loud, is that I'm a proud person. That's a hard thing to confess, but we've all suffered to varying degrees uh, with that problem, haven't we? To all who are proud and need humbling. <laughs> Grace Life Church opens wider doors. And Romans opens chapter 12. That's what really this section, especially verse 3, is all about. I've entitled this sermon today, Know Thyself. Uh, that's a, a really old saying that can be found in, in antiquity. Socrates supposedly was the one who came up with that. It was at the Oracle of Delphi. And Calvin opened up his great institutes of the Christian faith with, with you can't know yourself truly until you know God, and at the same time, you can't truly know God until you know your desperate need for Him. So Romans has really covered the gamut of all of that. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and then we're going to read our passage. I've listed uh, verses 3 through 8. We, we all know we're not going to get through verse 8 today, right? Who are we kidding? I really want to just tap down into verse 3 and 4 a little bit today, and then next week we'll come back and talk about the body of Christ, what Paul says about that. But I'm grateful to be here, and I want to thank you for the encouraging feedback uh, you gave from last week's message on the will of God. I also want to apologize. It's been nine years, nine years that I've been the lead pastor here, and that's the first and only sermon I've ever preached on the will of God. And based on the feedback, that was something that, that many of you, maybe most of you, really needed some help with. And, and I did not, not have my finger on the pulse of that need, so forgive me. I try to. I try to, to, to know the state and condition of the flock that I've been entrusted to, and so we're going to come back and visit that again in the future. I hope that that was helpful to you. You can go back and listen to that. It's, the download is available, and if you want some notes on it, uh, be happy to provide those as well. So uh, let's pray, and we'll read Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. Lord Jesus, thank you again for the privilege, the honor, the joy we have of, of gathering together in your name. As the body of Christ, recognizing that you are the head, we are the body, you are the cornerstone, we are the, the bricks, we are just the flock, you're the great shepherd, Father, and, and you're the Father and we're the family. All those analogies in the Bible remind us our place and also remind us that we are, are connected to you, Lord. You have redeemed us, you've adopted us, you have justified us, you have made us your own, we belong to you and nothing can ever change that. Father, that is our new identity. We have found a place at the table. We are in your kingdom. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness because of grace, all because of grace, Lord. Remind us of that truth today, and may it humble us. May it also embolden us and fill us with courage and hope to do hard things for you, Lord. You are worthy of that. You are worthy of, of, of taking risks that are going to honor you, Lord, even when it puts us in jeopardy of losing our reputation or being uh, not well thought of by, by the world, I pray that you would help me today, Lord, just say the things that are going to honor you and be truthful and accurate and helpful and even challenging and convicting if that is your spirit's will. Send your spirit to, to help us today, to illuminate our minds, to understand the truths that you have written down and preserved through your inspired apostle Paul to this letter to Rome, and uh, we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Romans chapter 12, if you have a copy of God's Word, if you don't, we'll put it up on the board here for you. Here we go. Starting in verse 3, chapter 12, Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I love how he starts that out, don't you? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You know, chapters 1 through 11 of this book that Paul wrote to the church at Rome were all about what we would call gospel doctrine, just chock full of deep, rich, profound, beautiful theology about who God is, who we are, what our sins have done and our relationship to God. They've separated us, they've alienated us, 
they have darkened and, and debased our minds and how Jesus has came and solved our deepest and greatest dilemma that it was impossible for us to do anything to fix. It's gospel doctrine. It's all about what God has done for us through Christ to bring us near, to redeem us, to justify us, to give us a new identity, to promise us glorious coming, to give us a new inheritance. That's all gospel doctrine, 1 through 11. And it's profound and it's deep. And I would echo what Martin Luther said. Here's what he said of this letter to Rome, especially the first 11 chapters. He said, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word. All right. <laughs> All right, Luther. They didn't have Instagram back then. I get it. All right. Not only should every Christian know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So I hope that Romans is not becoming odious to you. I hope it's tasting better, and I hope it's your daily bread, and I hope that these sermons, I mean, we don't have very long in here, guys. In the grand scheme of things, we get an hour together for the proclamation and the exposition of God's Word, but I pray that you're chewing the cud throughout the week. I pray that you're feeding yourself. I pray that you are spending time in God's Word, not just in Romans, but all of the different genres, all scriptures profitable for reproof, for correction, for equipping you. So chapters 1 through 11 is gospel doctrine. Now, starting in chapters 12 all the way through 16, we have what I would call, and I know this is an oversimplification, but I want to help you. This is what I would call gospel culture. Gospel culture. That means it is showing us what the gospel does. We know what the gospel is, chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 12 through 16 is showing what the gospel does. It creates this beautiful culture of relational beauty. How we are loyal to one another, we're committed to one another, we serve one another, we care for one another, we meet one another's needs. Why do we do those things? Because we've been so changed by grace. Because Jesus has met us in our deepest need, he has fundamentally changed our heart, our minds are being renewed. Paul talked about that, don't be conformed, he says something negative in verses 1 and 2, don't be conformed to this world's pattern or schema of thinking but be transformed, be, be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind so that your heart can be transformed. So, the relational beauty starts right here. If you were the Apostle Paul, oh, that's a dumb question probably. If you were the Apostle Paul and you had just a few chapters to tell people how the gospel should fundamentally change the way they treat other people, where would you start? I wonder where you would start. This is the beauty to me and it's the power and I'm just struck by it. I'm struck by it every time I read this. Paul starts with the mind. He starts with the way we think. And we would say, okay, yeah, the way you think about this or that or the other or the world or the church, you know where Paul starts? The way you and I think about ourselves. He uses the, a verb for think four different ways. Phroneo, just to put on a Greek nerd hat for a minute, phroneo is, is, is how you think, and he uses variations of it. One of them is huperphroneo, which is uh, the prefix hyper. He says, don't hyperthink. Don't, my, everyone told me when I was growing up, I know it's hard for you to imagine this, that I was hyper, and I needed hypermedicine. They told me, it was, back then it was called hypermedicine. My mom says, I ain't, ain't getting on no medicine. He's, um, hy, hyper is not a good thing. You know that? It's not. Hyper is a bad thing. It means in excess. For example, if you're an athlete and you hyperextend your knee and find yourself needing a, a new knee, that's bad. What do you do if you hyperextend your knee? You overextend it, and you do great damage. You've damaged yourself. You can't perform optimally anymore, right? Hyper is bad. Paul says, don't think huperfroneo. Don't hyperthink about yourself. Don't overthink yourself. Don't think you're all that in a bag of chips, because you're not. You're not. Chapters 1 through 11, so important here. If this, is how, how, this is our center of gravity. This is our... Uh, Man, this is, this is your, how you calibrate yourself, right? There is nothing, John Stott said, there is nothing that, that shrinks you down to size like the cross. Nothing in the universe that will do that to you. Now, it doesn't crush you and cause you to be down in despair. The cross really does two things. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to the outline in a second. The cross does two things. It shows you, you and I as fallen, sinful, depraved human beings... We're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. Do you know how humbling that is? If you think you're all that in a bag of chips, just remember, my friends, 
Jesus had to come and crawl inside a human body and subject himself to time and space and to the obedience to the, the point of death on a cross because you're that messed up. You and I are that messed up. That's humbling. But thank God, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He also shows us that we're so loved by him. We are image-bearing creatures made in his image, made in the likeness of God. He cared that much about us to come and rescue us as his lost treasure. So we're so sinful, Jesus had to die for us, but we're so loved, he was glad to do it. He saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. So that's what the, God, that's what the cross does ultimately. It humbles you, but it also fills you with hope and with courage. You can do anything that you need to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean you hit more home runs and score more touchdowns. It means you do hard things for Christ's honor when you have to. Things that are costly, things that are sacrificial. That's Romans 12.1. Present yourself as a living killing, a living sacrifice. You're constantly putting yourself back on the altar because he's worthy, right? So this, this is where the Apostle Paul starts with, with uh, gospel culture. If you're going to th- If you're going to treat one another the way that will make the world stand up and take notice, and Jesus said in John 13, by this, the world, outsiders, people out there who are alienated from God, they're in darkness, they don't understand, they're being held captive by the devil, they're dead in their sins, but there's something that can make them sit up and take notice and say, man, they're different. There's something different about them. I think they follow somebody else's drumbeat. They belong to another. What did Jesus say that was in John 13? By this, they, the world, will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you're like, oh, that's easy. We just got to love one another. Well, okay, how do we do that? What's that look like? That's Romans 12 through 16. How do we do that? First of all, you got to think about yourself the right way. This is where the Apostle Paul starts with the mind, to know thyself. Like, I know self-awareness can become a psychological term that we're, you know, We want a stiff arm, but really, this is a sanctified self-awareness, if you will. This is thinking about yourself the right way, the Christian way. This is where Paul starts. This is the kind of thing that turns heads. Francis Schaeffer was a great uh, Christian apologist, had had a very keen mind, and he said the final apologetic of the church, meaning not an apology, but a defense, the way that we defend the gospel and display the gospel is love. That's it. If you want to sum it up in one word, how can we make the world sit up and take notice? Do we have to be more cool? Do we have to do this better or that better? It's like, no, outlove them. Outlove them. That's what he says to do. And you're not, you're not going to outlove, you're not going to serve, you're not going to care for one another until and unless you think about yourself accurately, not hyperly, but soberly with proper and clear judgment. I could have called this sermon clear thinking because that's really what it's about. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, I want to read a couple of things earlier from Romans 1. This is in verse 28, Paul pointed out that when people reject God, they're on a, a dark downward, downward spiral. We did a couple of messages on, on that, and I called it a walk in the dark because it's like the lights get turned out. We, we, we have all these cultural idols that are God replacements. We're not thankful to God. We don't think the right way about God. We don't want to honor Him. We want to honor other things, ourselves, creatures, uh, and we want to worship anything but God, and God says, okay, that's the way your mind's going to think, that I'm going to turn the lights out. And he uses this word that's adakimos. It means disqualified. We have a debased mind. That means adakimos mind. He turns the lights out. And I want to read just a description, just to remind us. I know it's been a couple years since we've been in chapter 1, because this list is really dark and jolting, okay? This is what uh, a mind with the lights turned off does. And I'm going to compare this with Romans 12 too, the renewed mind, the dokimos mind, right? The mind that thinks and discerns and tests and approves versus the mind that disapproves. Here's the list. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does that sound like a list that would probably describe the cultural air that, that we breathe? It is. And, and the opposite of that is just the two words that we read in Romans 12 too, renewed mind, transformed heart, and it starts with humble thinking, not being boastful, not being arrogant, not being proud, not being hyper, overthinking ourselves. 
asked my daughter to, to do this the other day for me. She's kind of an artsy person. I believe, this is, uh, this is, this is kind of a, uh, hey, pay attention to this sermon, it's important kind of deal, okay? I believe, when, I, when I'm counseling somebody, I'm always trying to dig, 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 dig. I don't start with behavior. I never start with behavior, and you shouldn't either. You don't start with behavior. You, you, you start with the mind, and you start with the idols in the heart. I'm digging. A couple, for example, a couple comes in, and no, I'm never going to exploit your privacy. This just happens with every. A couple comes in and says, we need help, we need counseling, and they'll say, well, talk, talk to me about it. Talk to me. I just want to listen. And man, off they go. <laughs> I'm sorry. That sounds, that's, that sounds bad. Uh, but, you know, they're telling they got a problem. They're fighting, right? They're fighting. He does this. She does that. And then, you know, at some point I say, okay, hang on. Let's, let's time out. Stop for a minute. This is all smoke. This right here, this disagreement, this conflict, this anger, these accusations, it's all smoke. And where there's smoke, what is there? Fire. If you want to put all this smoke out, you can spray it with water, and guess what? It's going to come right back. You've got to dig, buddy. You've got to dig. And that's what I do in counseling. I don't, I'm not the best at it. Sometimes we, we recommend somebody that, that maybe needs help with somebody that's trained more deeply in those things, biblical training. Um, but I'm always digging, man, to get to the fire, to get to the idols of the heart. And I can tell you 99.9% of the time, it's pride. It's pride. If you do the things that Paul, and this is a commandment, by the way. You know, I've told you, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans has like three commands, which is shocking if you think about it. Paul says, hey, I'm ready to come to you who are in Rome, and I'm ready to preach the gospel and give you a layout of the Christian landscape, everything you need to know about Christianity. And he waxes eloquent for 11 chapters and doesn't tell you a thing to do. He tells you how to think and, and what to believe and what Christ did for you. It's all we call indicatives. Now chapter 12, there's a bunch of imperatives. There's a bunch of commands. And one of the very first ones is don't think this way, which is exactly the way the world tells you to think. You're it. You're awesome. You are all of that in a bag of chips. It's... it's it's nonstop. It's ceaseless. Whether it's political, and we're in an election year, you better get ready for this, man. Get ready for, get ready for pride. I, and uh, Hey, both parties, I don't care. Independents, non-affiliated, all of them. Mo mostly every politician, man. It's almost like you have to. If you're a humble politician, you're not even getting nominated to run for anything. Nobody's going to take you serious. It's the air we breathe. But I believe 99% of conflict in the home in the church, in the business, whatever, in the world, the civilization. You know, marriages are destroyed because of pride. Churches are destroyed because of pride. Narcissistic leaders want to occupy their seat of power and continue to control and manipulate because of pride. Humility, man, it covers so many things. And it doesn't make you less of a person. It makes you the actual person God made you to be. Jesus said, I'm the only adjective Jesus ever used to describe himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. You know what he said? I'm gentle and lowly. It was a book written by that title, one of the best, best books you can ever read by Dane Orland. I'm gentle and I'm lowly. That didn't make him any less of a human saying that, did it? So it won't us either. God's not tricking us here. This is human flourishing at its best. You are, I believe this, friends, you are never more like Christ than when you humble yourself. And you're never more like the devil than when you dig your heels in and say, no, I'm right. Pride destroyed the world. It, it destroyed the, the angels. The first sin, really, is pride. And Ezekiel talks about that. A lot of people believe that's about Ezekiel. It's a, kind of a typology, the, the king of Tyre, Lamentation. And he says he wanted to exalt himself even above the Most High. Okay, I got your attention. Everybody got really quiet. So that's the introduction. Here's the points. You ready? Uh, three things I want us to see, and no, we won't get to the third one. That's okay. That's kind of typical. We've kind of hit our pace. Three points, just kidding, two points, right? So point number one, think like Paul. And I, and I usually try to avoid stuff like that because it sounds so ungospel. Like Paul's your example here. You know, uh, we don't need an example. We need a Savior, but we actually need both, Okay. We need a Savior, and we need an example. And I love the way the Apostle Paul words this in, in verse 3. Look at this. He says, for by the, what? Grace given to me. 
I say to everyone among you, here comes the commandment, not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. I just love that about Paul, man. He doesn't say as an apostle. And he, he does say that in, in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God. But here, he said, I'm about to tell you a real hard thing, and I want you to know it's only by the grace of God, the grace, by the grace given to me, I say to you. He knew, Paul knew he was in the position that he was in only because of God's grace. Now listen, guys, if anybody could be puffed up with knowledge, with intellect, with ability, it's the apostle Paul. I mean, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had, he had mad clout, man. He was legit. He was vetted, right? He could say, do you, do you know who I am? Do you realize who I am? I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have to write 16 chapters. It should be half a chapter, and that's enough. Paul never got over the grace of God. He was so filled with amazement because what God had done for him. He never got over it. And I say, be like Paul. Don't get over the grace of God. Don't ever let Be stunned by it. Be shocked by it. It's, grace could be an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's unearned favor from God. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it. He just lavishes it upon us. Paul didn't deserve to be an apostle. He didn't deserve to be a Christian. He didn't deserve to write 13 epistles in the New Testament. And he knew that. He knew that. In fact, he would write at the risk of giving us paper cut here. Here's some of the things that Paul said. He said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am what? Chief. He didn't say I was. He says I am. Paul considered himself to be, and I know this can be a controversial point because it's an identity issue. Paul considered himself to be presently, when he wrote that letter to Timothy, the chief of sinners. He knew he had pride still that needed to be put down. He needed to be humbled. But he never got over the grace of God. Even later in chapter 15 of Romans, he would say this. On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me my God. Do you see? Grace makes you humble, but it also makes you bold. He's saying, look, I'm only in this position of telling you what to do because of God's grace. He's called me to be an apostle it's all by grace, therefore, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to hear. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to be shy. I'm not going to be afraid. That's what God's grace does to us. It humbles us. And when I say, think like Paul, I mean, I could even make that point like this. Note examples of humility and, and do likewise. Paul said, be, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? He could say that. He could say, set me up as an example as long as I'm being faithful to my master. He even told the Corinthians, he said, look, you have many instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I birthed you. I've begotten you. I preached the gospel to you. The first time you ever heard the gospel, I preached to you. In a way, I begot you. I, I adopted you. Uh, Paul endeared people to himself that way. He knew, though, that it was, it was all of grace. Here's a couple of other things that he said. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy of to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Here's one more, Ephesians 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Do you hear? Every time Paul mentions his office, his title, his authority, and guys, man, we're living in a day. It's how many examples of of somebody who's in a position of authority that exudes humility do you have? Not just in, in, in the seat of government, in the church, in a business. It's so rare. Here's this man, the Apostle Paul. He saw the risen Christ. He healed people by a touch. I mean, it said God did extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. A handkerchief. That's Paul, right? Not Peter. Am I getting that mixed up? I think it was Paul. Okay. A handkerchief that would have been, he might pull it out of his pocket and go and touch a dead body and, or, or a sick body. And it would, I mean, dude, I would, be, I would be intolerably proud. Would you? I mean, seriously. Like, somebody's at a dinner table and they're talking like, yeah, I've done this and I've done that. And in between, you know, a bite of spaghetti, you're like, yeah, well, I raised a few people from the dead. Can I get another roll? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'd be intolerably, insufferably proud. And probably you would too, if we're honest. But Paul never got over God's grace. 
He said, I'm no different. Listen, guys, nobody in this room is more justified than anybody else. Nobody. Nobody in this room is more regenerated than the next. Nobody in here is more adopted than any other Christian. No, some of you may understand that at a deeper level, and hopefully you're more humble, not more proud. You're not puffed up, but it's the ground is level. Paul knew that. Paul knew that. Hey, that's why I said I'm the least of the apostles. I don't think that's Paul doing a humble brag. It's inspired. He really meant that. He viewed himself that way, and he never got over it. And man, I want to be like that. Think like Paul. I have to think like that. If I'm ever tempted, like, oh, look, man, I'm a church planner. I get up here, I can say whatever I want, which is not true. You guys will hold me accountable, you know. But it's, 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 it's a humbling position to be in, and, and it's all because of God's grace. I'm not any better than anybody else. I have a more visible gift. God has called me to a more visible gift, and with that comes a lot of accountability. James says, let not, he actually says this, stop being so many of you teachers, knowing that yours will be the stricter judgment. Man, that terrifies me at times. So, sorry if I'm getting lost here in the point. Uh, Peter is another example. People say that Peter was the first pope. He would gag. He would gag to hear that. Thank God he's in heaven and he doesn't hear it. It would grieve his heart to hear that. What has been done in his name? Peter said, uh, uh, I'm among you elders. I'm a, I'm a fellow shepherd. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. If he knew that people were clamoring to kiss the toe of a man who calls himself the head of the church, oh my word. And that's not me digging, that's just an example. Call, call no one father, the Bible says, right? Peter is an example of humility. Here's some of my favorite examples of humility in the New Testament, and it's so subtle, it's almost buried. The book of James and the book of John, just so you know, it's almost undisputed who wrote those books. They were the brothers of Jesus Christ, the blood brothers. They were in his family. Mary, it, it lists in several places in the Bible, his brothers were Jude and James. And it's almost undisputed amongst credible biblical scholars that those were the very brothers who wrote the book of James and the book of Jude. Now, now let's just be honest. If you were writing, this is so hypothetically crazy, if you were writing an epistle and Jesus were your brother, wouldn't it go something like this? Tommy brother of Jesus. I'm the brother of Jesus. We're bros. We grew up together. I punched him. He never punched me back. I was with him. I know him. I know his secret. No, you know how they started? Check this out. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is even, Jude is even uh, more incredible. Jude, a slave of Christ and brother of James. Man, you missed an opportunity, bro. Could have got some clout, but he didn't do it. He didn't go there. Why? Because he, he never got over the amazement of God's grace. And if you read the New Testament Gospels, you will remember at one time, both of them said to Jesus, you're insane, you're crazy, you're nuts. Remember that? They never got over that. They never got over that. That they were once dead and held captive and enemies of God and didn't believe and mocked him. And just like the thief on the cross that got converted instantly, at one point they were mocking him and persecuting him. They never got over that. Examples of humility are very rare. They're very rare. We, we, we want to embellish and inflate and exaggerate our importance, don't we? I remember I was telling my wife this. I almost, I almost put a picture of it, but I didn't want to distract you. My high school annual, it's just funny, man. In 1993, when I graduated, it was the thing to do. You would, have, you would get to write your own description of yourself, which is pretty daring that they would allow you to do that. And you would put all the clubs that you were in, all the sports you played, all the accomplishments, and man, we, we doctored it up. I'm just going to be honest with you. There are clubs that are by, besides some of my friends' names, and I'm like, bro, you weren't in the Spanish club. I'm like, you were. They were like, see. Sí. I'm like, no, no, see. Sí. You were not in the Spanish club, bro. And they're like, well, check the picture out. And you look, and they're in the picture. And they, they snuck in the picture. And they would write under their name all this stuff. President of the Spanish Club, treasurer of FCA, we're like, bro, those are all lies. Why did people do that? To be silly, it was, I guess, fun and stupid back then. But you know why, honestly? Because the longer the description was under your name in 1993 in the high school annual, the more clout you had, the more legit you were. And honestly, some of the colleges you applied to, you would copy and paste that. Like, yeah, I was uh, FBLF, Future Business Leaders of America for four years, president, treasurer, blah, blah, blah. Seriously, it's... And that hasn't changed. Now it's just gone digital. That's all, right? 
I know, I could say a lot about that. I was, uh, in, in talking about looking for examples, I don't talk about sports a whole lot, uh, but I can't pass this up, man. This is a great, hey, I don't know if you guys have seen this. Barry Sanders, when I was a high school halfback playing football, and football was, I wasn't a Christian then, football was my life. It was, I can't imagine, I told my wife, if COVID had hit my junior and senior year, and they just said, hey, football's canceled, dude, I, it, made, it made me empathetic toward all the juniors and sophomores and seniors that their, their sports for two or three years, that had to be, if they weren't Christians especially, devastating. Because that's your identity. Growing up, that was, that was everything to me. Every, every ounce of trouble I stayed out of, it wasn't because I was a good kid, it's because I didn't want to jeopardize, you know, the optimal uh, play I had as a, a running man. Anyway, Barry Sanders was my model. He was my hero, man. He was only five foot eight. He went to the Detroit Lions, and he was an incredible athlete, and he, like, busted and shattered all these records. And this documentary is called Bye Bye Barry. That's, a, that's kind of a double entendre because, number one, nobody could catch Barry. And if you thought you had him, guess what? You don't. <laughs> he would, like, do the one-two, and you would be left spinning. Seriously, in this documentary, they show highlights, and they would count. the Barry would be over here, man, at this hash mark at the 50-yard line. And the announcer would count one, two, three, and he'd be at the 30 over here. And they're like, how does that happen? And the guy that tried to tackle him would be sitting down with like <laughs> whirly birds going around. And it's also called Bye Bye Barry because Barry, to the shock and dismay of everyone, including myself, he retired when he was like 31 years old. Shocked everybody. It's like, dude, you're in your prime. What are you doing? If Barry Sanders would have remained in the NFL he would have not only shattered all the records he did shatter, he would have destroyed them, all of them, like Jim Brown, Bo Jackson, all that. Uh, I, had, I had a stat of some of his, I don't even know if you can probably see that anyway, but Bye Bye Barry is, they're, they're wanting to find out why did Barry retire, and it's just hilarious because in the very beginning, in the very beginning of this, they show a tape of uh, draft day in 19, I think it was... 1989, the, the same day, and they're not related at all, <laughs> uh, Barry Sanders and Deion Sanders, they both uh, were interviewed by people after they were drafted, and Deion Sanders was scared to death that Detroit was going to draft him. He didn't want to go. Uh, instead, the, the Atlanta Falcons um, drafted him, but Barry Sanders wanted to be drafted by the Detroit Lions, and they finally caught up. Here, I, I wrote it down. Let me find it. Give me just a second here. They were annoyed. The interviewer was annoyed because he couldn't find Barry Sanders anywhere. He looked all over the place. He couldn't find it. It was almost like Barry was like Saul. He was like hiding in the equipment. You remember the Old Testament? They're like, here's our new king, Saul. And they're like, what, where, where's Saul at? And he was hiding. He didn't, he didn't want any attention. In the beginning, he didn't. At the end, that changed. But Barry, they eventually tracked him down to his hometown of Wichita, Kansas. And this is what the interviewer said. He said, Barry Sanders is just as elusive off the field as on the field. You're hard to track down, Mr. Sanders. We had sightings of you going to church, and that's one of the only clues you'll get in this documentary as to why Barry Sanders was so different. He is a very committed Christian, and man, does it show in a way that is such a stark contrast with just about every other athlete, especially the other one that's up there, which I've come to learn that Deion Sanders came to Christ later in life. I haven't investigated that, but I want to believe the best. That's awesome. Uh, we had sightings of you going to church. We had sightings of you going to the airport. Where have you been? Barry says, I've been home. <laughs> you don't seem like you're thrilled with all of this, the interviewer says. Barry says, well, you know, football's a game, and I don't really like dealing with all the unnecessary stuff that goes along with it. And then the guy gets visibly agitated because he's had to spend hours looking for Barry, and Barry was elusive. Pretty tough to be a pro athlete and stay out of the spotlight there, bud. And Barry said, well, I'm not trying to downcut what you guys do. I respect what you do, but I'm learning already that people don't really care about you in situations like this. They just want what they can get out of you. It's just interesting to me, man, what Romans 12 says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Everybody else in, in the athletic realm pretty much does. And Barry is like, no, I love, I love being home with my family. I went to church today. And here's what's interesting. He scored over 108 touchdowns, Barry did. Now, 
And I got to admit, when I, you know, when I played football too, we all do it. You score a touchdown, what do you do? You take that foot. Yeah, man, you throw, you dunk it backwards over the goalpost. You throw it at somebody's face that tried to tackle you. You spike it, you, you know, you throw it on your legs to the rest. You know what Barry did? Barry's signature move, you know what it was? Every time that kid scored a touchdown, you know what he would do? He would run up to the ref and hand the football to the ref. Because Barry didn't think he was all that in a bag of chips. Barry knew every talent and ability, every fast twitch muscle fiber that guy had, he knew where it came from. It came from God, and he didn't view himself on an elevated uh, status above everybody else. In fact, somebody wanted to come and interview him later when he was really famous, and he gave, they, this comes out in the documentary, he said, I have one request. He said, don't come up to me with the cameras and the cars and all that while the rest of my, of my teammates are with me. I don't want them to feel discouraged like they're not as important as everybody else on the team. Isn't that crazy? Who thinks like that? Christians think like that. That's who thinks like that. And Barry's dad was a committed Christian, and he's the one that taught him that kind of humility. On the other side of that, yes, I was getting to this, is, is Deion Sanders. And he's just funny, man. Uh, he calls him, what is it, prime time, baby, prime time, right? And they were interviewing him, and they said, so what do you think? And he said, oh, man, I was so scared that Detroit was going to draft me, and I was going to tell them they can't afford me. They was going to have to put me on layaway. And he would say things like, you know, the water covers two-thirds of the earth, and he was a cornerback. He said, water covers two-thirds of the earth, and Deion Sanders covers the other third. And later he became a coach, and he would not address his players until they referred to him as Coach Primetime. It's just a stark difference between a Christian and the way that a Christian thinks with humility and somebody else. So think like Paul, maybe think like Barry. Find noteworthy examples of humility. Find somebody within the church. You're like, dude, that person is so different. I would, I would, I would be daring enough to say that when you find a Christian leader that's so different, it's probably got something to do with, with the way they think about themselves. So think like Paul, and here's the second, here's the second point, and it'll be quick, okay? Think soberly. Think soberly. Let's look at the rest of verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, so everyone here is included, every single person is included, and we'll learn next week, he's going to connect this and apply this to spiritual gifts. Every single Christian has been endowed with a spiritual gift from God's Holy Spirit. It's a gift from Him. And it's given according to the measure of faith that God sovereignly determines. And Paul is going to tell people, you won't ever be able to properly use that gift until you think about yourself the right way, and then you'll think about your gift the right way. And by the way, scholars tell us that he was writing this letter to Romans from Corinth. He's in the city where the famous or infamous, infamous church of the Corinthians was. You remember, they had a real problem with spiritual gifts. Paul had to... To, to write that epistle, it was a corrective epistle. Corinthians was. They were misusing their gifts because they were so puffed up and they were so proud. And he had to write that corrective epistle. And here, he's writing not so much a corrective epistle, he's writing a, a preemptive strike. He's saying, look, now we need to talk about spiritual gifts. And I need to preface what I'm about to say by telling you this. Don't you dare think of yourself more highly than you ought. Here, here's the rest of it. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And I think sober judgment is a good translation of that verb. There's huper, and then there's a sophroneo, because it literally means not insane, not intoxicated. It, it, it means to, to, to think clearly. It's, it's the same word that was used in Mark 5 when Jesus finds in the region of the Gadarenes a demoniac. You remember this? He's filled with demons. And he says, what's your name? And he says, Legion, for we are many. And everyone in the town is scared to death, and Jesus is not. He confronts it. He, he, he brings out the humanity. He, he asks the man, what's your name? Probably nobody had ever asked him that. People probably ran from him. But you remember, this guy's naked. He's bloody. He's, he's insane. He lives amongst uh, unclean uh, graves. He lives in an unclean region of Gentiles, and he's involved in an unclean occupation. Swine. That's about as unclean as you could get for a Jew. He lives amongst Gentiles, he lives in the, in the tombstones, and he's with pigs. And he's, he's crazy, he's lost it. And the Bible says that Jesus, when he was done, when he exercised the demon, there's a description that's given there, it's so beautiful. And it says, all the town people ran away when the swine did the swine dive off the cliff. <laughs> and Jesus came back, 
uh, he was there with the man, and the townspeople came, and it says, and when they saw the man who formerly had the demon seated, clothed, and in his sophroneo, right mind, they were terrified. <laughs> it's, it's, it would have the opposite effect, right? They know, oh my word, this guy's God. <laughs> Jesus is God. He has great power. But that no longer was he insane, no longer was he uncontrollable. He was thinking soberly and clearly, not hyper-thinking, not screaming, not bloody, not crazy, not terrorizing the countryside. He was put in his right mind. And the Apostle Paul says that's exactly the effect that the gospel should have. And when you are renewing your mind day by day, when you're washing your mind and your heart with God's word, it will humble you and it will make you think properly about yourself. You don't have to be at the center of the world. You don't have to be enshrined and enthroned. You can be at your proper place. You can recognize I have a gift. God gave me that gift. I'm responsible for it. I want to be a good steward of it, and I want to use it to build up and edify and help and serve others. That's thinking soberly. Not thinking soberly is primetime, baby. Water covers two-thirds of the earth, and I cover the other third. Anyway, not intoxicated, not inebriated, which when you think about it, I mean, we're all grown-ups in here. I mean, most of us are. Um, when, I meant kids. I'm not insulting anybody. <laughs> when you're intoxicated, now I know nobody in here has ever drank too much alcohol. I know that, right? <laughs> when you drink too much alcohol, you are under the what? Influence. Now, let me ask you a question. Now, let's just be honest. Let's be real. When you've been drinking too much and you're around your buddies, are you humble? Do you think you've got all the answers? Do you think you can, I mean, for, for guys growing up when I was in my, my uh, Greek fraternity years, everybody wanted to fight, and it didn't matter. They're like, dude, you're going to die. They're like, no, I can take him. Trust me. When you're, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm going off the ropes today. When you're, when you're inebriated, you're not thinking clearly. You think you can conquer everything. You're all that. You have this inflated, exaggerated, insane view of yourself. That's the word that Paul chose to use. Don't think that way. That's, by the way, that is a qualification for an elder. Sober-minded, same word. That grieves my heart, man, to see how ignored this is. Not just in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, but this is for all Christians. We're supposed to think this way. Humbly, soberly, staring at the cross. How can we do other? How can we do otherwise? Think like Paul, think soberly, think sensibly, think clearly. It's insane. It's insane what pride does to you. I don't know if any of you have read the Hunger Games or watched the Hunger Games, and hopefully nobody has a problem with that. You know, it's hard to find illustrations nobody has a problem with. I do my best, you know. Um, but in that book, there's a, there's a capital city, and then there's 12 or 13 outlying districts. And I don't know, man, Suzanne Collins, who wrote that book, she, usually authors don't talk too much about their books and say that's a metaphor, that's an analogy, because they like the enigma, that's art, it means whatever you want it to mean kind of thing. But man, it's pretty clearly, when you read about the capital city and Hunger Games, the people lived opulent there, they lived in luxury, uh, luxuriously, they were very proud. And the way she describes the people there what they wore, they had plastic surgery that didn't help their looks, it disfigured them. Some of them had whiskers, they had mane like a lion, some of them had a, a, uh, crazy uh, tattoos, uh, and they had makeup, and they didn't even look like humans. And when they would go to parties, they had this view of themselves that they were better, they were more socially elite, culturally refined. They would actually drink this elixir that would make them, uh, their stomachs could, could, almost like the Epicureans, they would throw up and vomit because they were pleasure seekers, so they could enjoy more of the party when all the 13 outlying districts were starving to death. It's just interesting to me, man. When you read a dystopian novel like that, there's always a capital city, think Babylon, and, and the primary lifestyle and, and way of thinking in there is pride, hubris, right? It's, it's, we look at we see examples of this everywhere, but whenever Katniss and, and Pitna were, were, were talking about this, they were talking about how disfigured all the people were, and they couldn't see it. They were blind to it. You kind of see that in the movie. If you've seen it or read the book, you're like, oh, my word, they think this is normal. There's people that are dying and they're starving and they're so elite, so drunk 
with self-importance self and full of themselves. They can't see how, it, how hideous and how ugly they've become. And that's what pride does to you. It blinds you. It eclipses you to, to seeing the glory of Christ and taking your proper position and posture in life. And I know there's a lot of other examples. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. He said it's actually thinking of yourself less. You're not thinking of yourself really at all. You're thinking of others. You're thinking how you can help others, how you can serve others. I wanted to give you a quote here. Just very briefly, just, just apply this. When, it was, when I, was, uh, I was installed as the college director of a pretty large church in Central Florida in 2004, and a lot of things on the internet were happening in that time, and one of them was MySpace. You guys remember that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was caught off guard, man. I, had, I, I mean, I'm still kind of, a, kind of ignorant. My, my, my kids make fun of me, man. I don't, I, don't, I don't get all of it, you know, the social media stuff. I can't keep up with it, really. I'm an easy target. Uh, but I was the college director, man, and I, back then I, was, I was, had a, a lot more clamp down, do this, don't do this, stay away from that, less gospel, more commands kind of idea. And when that came out, it caught me off guard. I was like, my space, my, that's not good. That can't be good. My space? What's that all about? That sounds like a shrine, right? Um, and, and it went from MySpace, and then it, what was the next one? Y'all help me out here. What was the, what was the morphing in the, in the uh, was it Facebook was next, right? And then Instagram, Snapchat. See, I'm just testing you guys here, right? <laughs> now, look, guys, those aren't evil. They're tools. They're tools. They're, they're, they're great servants, and they're poor masters. But I can tell you, if Romans 12, too, if we want to apply that, do not be conformed to this world's way of thinking, yeah, well, you would do it responsibly. You would do it thoughtfully. You're going to have to engage with the world, right? Paul is asking you to, to be thoughtful about the way you engage with the world. If you just thoughtfully engage on all those mediums and social network platforms, it will be a shrine. And it will be the most embellished, outlandish, uh, Hunger Game capital-esque way of viewing yourself, your wins, your successes, your victories, and that's not good. It doesn't help you, and it doesn't help others. I wanted to read this quote. Uh, Dave Mathis said this. He said, Modern humans are no more swollen with self-regard than our ancestors, but we do have a bigger box of powerful digital tools for going into all the world and preaching ourselves. Isn't that good? It's in the air and on our screens. If we look at the world around us for our balance, we will soar in self-exaltation or soon crash and self-pity. And he goes on to say, in our society of hype and hyperbola, pomp and posturing, we embellish our own online profiles, selecting our most flattering photo, highlighting our most impressive accomplishments. We are in an epidemic of over-promising and underperforming. Few seem to have the humility to speak, post, and report with the simple truth soberly, honestly, and humbly. And they got really quiet in here, man. I want to be a good pastor. I want you to think about that. As a Christian, I don't think it's wrong for you to have social media uh, per se. I think that's something you need to talk to the Lord about. But the way you engage the world, the way you use that, is it a master? Is it a tool? Do you view that as a tool to promote yourself and to exalt yourself and make much of yourself? Or, or is it just a servant to stay connected with people? and to exalt Christ, and to use responsibly, and maybe put resources into people's hands. That's not something I'm, I'm, as a pastor, can apply for you. It's something the Holy Spirit will help you with. It's definitely something you should consider, and think about, and talk about. Um, one final thing, and then we're done, okay? You guys have been great today. You're so patient with me when I try to over-preach a passage. Oh, I know you do, and I love you too, man. Being the most humbling thing in my life is being the pastor of this church. It really is. It's been the, the most incredible experience. Deuteronomy chapter 17 is a passage in the Old Testament, and it's for kings. Whenever a person was anointed a king over Israel, God saw that it was coming because he's sovereign and he sees everything, right? He saw it way back in the Pentateuch. He said, hey, look, whenever you, whenever you appoint a king for yourself, here were some rules. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Did you know every king had to handwrite a copy of the Pentateuch in Hebrew? 
they were supposed to. And you say, man, that's crazy. Was that punishment? Was that like writing sentences on the chalkboard? They did, you're a king. You did something wrong. No, no. Check it out. Approved by the Levitical priest. No shortcuts. All of Leviticus, right? You got to write all of Leviticus. <laughs> and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life. So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, and then check this out, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. You like that? I think the newly elected president of the United States ought to do that. Don't you? Let's make him. Let's make him do that. Let's say, hey, put your hand on the Bible when you swear. Now, take it with you, bro. Read it. Meditate on it. Practice it so that your heart will not be lifted up above your brothers. But listen, how many of us in here are kings? Well, we're, we're a kingdom of kings and priests unto God, aren't we? So think like Paul. Think soberly. And next week, we're going to talk about what it means to think like a body. I know it's kind of a contradiction, but I'll share what Paul says about that. Let's pray. Lord, we, can't, we cannot but be humbled when we think of what you had to do to redeem us, Lord. We were hopeless. We were helpless. We were enslaved. We were in bondage. We were like the demoniac in Mark 5. We were insane. We, we were inebriated with, with both self-love and self-loathing, Lord, a confusing mixture of, of emotions. We were so lost, Lord, and, and so undone, but you came. You came, you walked across the storm of our life, Lord, and you, and you tamed our heart. You called us, you quickened our, our spirit, you, you resurrected us, God. You opened our eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the truth and the love of Christ. You beckoned us to come to you. You reminded us that you are gentle and lowly, that you won't hurt us, you will heal us. You will change us from the inside out. You will adopt us and justify us and seat us at your table. You will cover and clothe our shame. You will remove our condemnation and our guilt. You will cleanse us with your blood. Lord, we need that. When we're honest, when we're being truthful, we confess, Lord, we need it. We need it every day. We need fresh washing and cleansing. We need to be reminded of how good we have it in your kingdom, Lord. Why would we ever turn away? Why would we ever want to be filled with ourselves when we can be filled with you more and more? Give us more of yourself. Help us to to bask in your love, Lord. Like Luther said, even a cold rock is warmed if it just lies in the sun. Help us to just lie in the sunshine, Lord, and just bask in your love, just to stare at the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb, and just be changed by what we see, to be overwhelmed and overcome by it. I pray that anyone in here, Lord, struggling with pride, and we all are, you would crush it, you would melt it, you would evaporate it and dissolve it, Lord, and help us to not only think differently about ourselves, but in turn, think differently about others. Help us to understand that this week and next. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.